Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Sandy and I have to head out this morning after the morning session. Uh, we have a quick turnaround for another ministry opportunity coming up. So we have enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed our time with you this week in the sessions and conversation, words of encouragement from you. Uh, it's been a great week for us, encouraging for us as well, so thank you for that. And I want to thank the worship team for leading us in music. They've done a fantastic job. And, and Pastor Steve, thank you for your challenges in Haggai. It's been really enriching to our lives. So thank you for all that. And thank you, Danny, for being program chairman, doing a good job of kind of piecing things together. Appreciate that so much. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. I know that all of you do not have dependent children at home. Some of you used to. Some of you may be looking forward to that. Uh, but all of us need to understand what the Bible says about the training of children. You know, older women are to be investing in younger women to love their husband, love their children. So you have a ministry to the younger women of your church and in your life to encourage them to be workers at home, submitting to their husband, and loving their children, loving their husband. So everyone has a ministry somehow to children. I hope it will be encouraging to you today. There's a great need uh, always for the training of the next generation. You look at the nature of children, it demands it. Uh, they're born unregenerate, and, which means demanding, entitled, and all this stuff. They're born immature and ignorant. They know nothing. And so there's a need to train them, the need for the God. There's a decline in the family, the attacks on the family. The dynamics of each generation needing to be taught. A key passage to write down is Psalm 78. We came across that later in our child training, and it, it was life-changing. Four generations of not hiding the works of God from our children, so that they might see the invisible hand of God in our life, and not be like their fathers who did not put their trust in Him. So generational truth to show them the, the hand of God, the works of God in life, and so the need for every generation. And the importance of doctrine, Titus chapter 2, another key passage, you might want to write that one down. Titus chapter 2, about relationships in the church family and our families, older men, older women, younger women, moms, teens. And this is the things that are befitting of sound doctrine, the things that adorn sound doctrine. This is significant stuff. And I'm going to share with you today from the Word of God, I think, things that are foundational uh, to raising children. So we look at God's provision uh, our salvation, the Savior, or the Spirit of God, the Scripture, the saints, the shepherd. We have everything that we need to raise our kids. I'm going to give you some context here from Ephesians 6. We're going to talk about a template today, meaning five, I think, fundamental truths, all of which are significant because they come from the Word. Two of them uh, as exhortations in the text, three of them implied in the text, but all of them significant. And we're going to put some meat on the bones a little bit this morning, but you're going to have to flesh these out uh, as you live out your life with your kids. But these are significant things that have helped shape the training of children. So it's a template. You need to take this seriously. It's going to be difficult. Demanding requires diligence. And your kids are going to have to own this. They're responsible for their response to the gospel. And they're called upon the Lord to obey and to honor their mom and dad because it's right. And that's what believing children do. And so you, you work hard and you pray hard that God would work and they would own it. And you can't control that. That was hard as a parent to learn. But it matters how we train them. 
or God would not have told us what to do. And in the end, they have to own it. So you work hard and you pray hard and there are transitions in life. You wonder if they're getting it. And there can be sometimes a deer in the headlight look. I don't know Angela, who's not here, <laughs> so I can talk about her, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. She's okay with this. I think it was eighth grade, she turned into a, a zombie. Just kind of, hello, anybody home? And it just was just not, I said, what, where, where did we go wrong? And for an entire year, we're scratching our head, praying like crazy, and then she just came out of it. There might be seasons like that with your kids where they just kind of just are not there. Or seasons of significant rebellion. You get past them and get past them, and then there's another one. And so they have to own it, but you work hard because God has given us a stewardship of our children, and these are significant principles that we have to, to apply to them and pray very hard that God would work, a work of redemption, a work of humility, that they would own it, and you can tell they begin to own their walk with God. We're responsible, and they're accountable, and God is sovereign, as simple as I can make it. Now, here's some significant texts. I want you to write these down, because we can't go over all of them in depth, but these are significant and have been to us. Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Actually, the whole book of Ephesians would be relevant. Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives us the process of do, teaching this while we walk by the way. This is the process. Deuteronomy 6, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Psalm 78, Proverbs, the entire book, and especially chapter 31. Colossians chapter 3, bullet point version of Ephesians 6. Titus chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12. Those are key scriptures, and when we were first saved, uh, we had a hunger for the Word, and amazing that we had a Bible that we could now understand and use. And I guess we were just ignorant enough to believe that God would honor the application of His Word. If we read it and studied and applied it, that He would bless that, and He did. So we're going to give you a template today with a little bit of meat on the bone. You're going to have to flesh this out uh, throughout your walk with the Lord. So God's expectations are that we walk with him, be filled with the Spirit, we know his word, we work on our marriages, and we trust him. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, which is prior to chapter 6, we're to be filled with the Spirit. This is saved, Spirit-filled parents manifested by joy and singing and yieldedness, like Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves one to another, a mutual... Then he talks about moms and dads and kids and servants. So undergirding all of this is a relationship with Christ and a spirit-filled walk with him that's yielded to him, empowered by him to, to flesh this out in relationships in the family. It's a spirit-filled parenting. And there is hope. <laughs> and you're saying, oh man, our kids are going through a faith. There is hope, okay? <laughs> there is hope. And all this must matter or God would not have told us what to do with our kids. It makes a difference how you train them. Now, they have to own it. You can't control that, but it matters how you train them, but God would not have told us what to do. It makes a difference. We are in instruments. We're vessels in the hand of God. The nature of children, they are mimics, and they are trusting. I'm glad that God made them that way, or we couldn't possibly train them. They're unregenerate when they're born, and we have to train them when they're, before they're saved, but God made them to be mimics. We're to mimic God like little children, 
and they tend to be trusting us. So we make an appeal to their ability to, to mimic and trust us, and that God gives us hope in his word. A key verse that we clung to, what's the past tense of cling? Cling on? No, no, no. Clung, is clung right? It just doesn't sound right. Clanged? I never get this right. I think it's clung. We hung on to <laughs> Hebrews 12. Discipline for the present time is grievous and not joyful because it isn't supposed to be. It is painfully difficult for them and for you. But afterwards yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that are trained by it. We hung on to the word afterwards. For right now, pretty painful, pretty grievous, not a lot of joy as you train them and shape them and mold them. But afterwards, you begin to see the fruit of the training and a peaceable fruit of righteousness for those that are trained by it. We just hung on to those words and, and God honored that. So with, with that kind of preparatory sauce, uh, let's begin looking at Ephesians chapter 6 today. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Begin reading in verse 1. These exhortations to children and move on to parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. These are believing children within the realm of their walk with the Lord. They are to obey their parents. And for this is right. Honor, value highly like a treasure your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's our text for today. Point number one, take responsibility for your family. That's implied here. He's addressing fathers as the ones who raise up their children. We have to take responsibility for that, to raise up our children. I think we've done too much delegating way too dependent, others to do that for us. Now, God will bring alongside the life of your kids others that will invest in them. And that's how it should be. Now, we bring them to, to church, and they have uh, Sunday school, they have VBS, we have kids' ministries, we have sometimes youth pastors, student ministries, and they come alongside, but you de never de delegate responsibility to them. You never give that up. You retain that. Others help you. They teach them how to play piano, how to play basketball, all that you'd send them to camp. But you never give up being a mom and a dad. You never give up responsibility for training them. Or you'll find quickly someone else to blame if they don't turn out right. It's an interesting, fine mental shift. You call upon others to help you, and a church can help you. But a good church ministry never takes ownership of your kids. They want to help you do that. That's a big deal. And if I was a pastor for a number of years, we had, uh, uh, we had a teen ministry team that we put together, kind of like the contenders or the traveling ministry teams of faith, and we put together a singing team, and we traveled to churches, and Sandy was in charge of the Pastor Pirate Bible Club, and uh, they taught the kids how to do skits and how to sing. She put grapes in their mouth to make them say words clearly, even if it was difficult. We traveled to churches with our patch kids, with our ministry kids, like 35 or 40 kids, and their parents would come with us on Sunday nights. We had Sunday morning services. 
And we went to one church, and one astute lady said, uh, actually, one of the men, he said, don't you wish you had a big bus? I said, no. I wouldn't buy one if I had the money. See all those moms and dads in their cars? They would just stop coming. Every good church ministry comes alongside parents and never takes ownership of your kids, but it helps assimilate them into the church family and some incorporate parents into the training process. I said, I will help you raise your kids. I'm not going to raise them for you. We'll come alongside and we'll help. That's an interesting shift in thinking. If you're involved in a youth ministry, be careful to not isolate those kids from their parents. Find some way to incorporate mom and dad. They need training or these kids will grow up depending on someone else to raise their kids. It becomes a generational mistake. I'm kind of burying my heart here a little bit, but I think it's biblical. Fathers bring them up. Our pastor started a group study with men to learn how to raise godly sons and daughters. Had our first meeting just a week ago. And what's the name of the book, Danny? Raising Men, Not Boys. That's the kind of stuff a church should be doing to help moms and dads be better parents. So you take responsibility for your kids. Allow others to come alongside and help, but have been too much delegating, too many dependent. And I remember when we were first saved back in you know, about 40 years ago and got into pastoral ministry. Uh, we, we would talk to parents and said, you know, I just don't get it. And I know the kids have to own it, and they can go astray and make the wrong friends and make the wrong decisions. They said, I don't get it. I brought my kids to camp. Uh, I, I put them in Sunday school and VBS. What went wrong? He said, you ever train them at home? And they kind of go, what? I said, that's what happened. I think we're getting better at that. But take responsibility for your family and fathers and mothers raise up your kids. The exhortation directed to you as moms and dads. Secondly, work together as a mom and a dad. You work together. The word fathers is translated parents in Hebrews 11, Moses' parents hid him. So this is directed to the dad as the head of the home, but the mom and dad laboring together to raise their kids. This is part of working together as a companion and union in a marriage. Now I understand that we have different roles in the family. We have a complementarian view of moms and dads in the home. And, and, and mothers are to be workers at home, biblically, uh, they are to be helpers and submissive to their husband. And if you look at Titus chapter 2, they're to be workers at home. It means that's their occupation is the word. That's what goes on their W-2 in a sense. That they, they're, they're, they're workers at home. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 or 4, it says, the younger women are to marry and bear children and guide the house and guide her home. The word guide is the word despoteo. It means a despot, like a benevolent dictator is the word. It's her kingdom, and she's in charge of it. And she speaks with kindness and wisdom, but she looks well to the ways of her household. In the absence of dad being gone, this is her little world. And she's in charge of it. And she's to be like, it's not a democracy. It's not even a representative republic. <laughs> it's a benevolent dictatorship. You know, because I'm the mom really is true. She is to guide the house. 
and, and, and it's her household, and so that is her role. She's to be a worker at home and respect her husband. And dads, we are to provide for them and protect them and love them and lead them. In fact, the primary job of a husband is to love his wife. We're by, by definition the head of the home. We're never told to lead them. We're, we, we're told to love them. Because we're the head, we lead them, but we love them by nourishing them, by sanctifying them, by cherishing them. I love that word because it's a chicken metaphor. You know what, capon's a chicken, right? How many knew that? How many did not know that? Well, now you do. A capon is a, it's a better cut of fowl right next to the turkeys in the IV department. So in truth. And it's a chicken metaphor. Cherishing means like a mother hen keeping her brood warm and safe and protected. Your wife should never feel threatened by you. You're to protect her. Nothing that would threaten her because of your strength or your manhood. You cherish her. Speaks of affection and protection and safety. And you nourish her. You, you feed her and bring her. It's the same word in Ephesians chapter 6 of bring them up means to bring them to maturity. So you so nourish and feed your wife that she grows, and then God can use her. So you feed her, you grow her, you spiritually invest in her. And all of that is how you love her, leaving and cleaving, dwelling with her in an understanding way. Women can be understood because we're told that we should. <laughs> you share a life with them. We're dwelling, share a life with them, in a way that understands them. It's a, it's a lifelong process to understand your wife. But I love it. Understand how God made women, how he made your woman, her hopes, her fears, her dreams. You share a life with her, and that's what she thought you meant when you said, I do. I want to share my life with you. If you're thinking, I just want to pay the bills and go to work, that's not what you signed up for. That's part of providing and protecting, but it's more than that. It's a life with her to share with her to dwell with her, and then to honor her and lift her up. Being a mother is a lot of work. Men, if we did it by ourselves, we would fail. There's a mothering, nurturing instinct that God put in women to care for their family. They're relational. God designed them that way. They're tough. They're strong. And all they do in a day is something we would get tired of in an hour. And they feed them, and they clothe them, and they... they, they, they pick up after them, and they, they, they spit on them, and they, they, all the diapers, and we had cloth diapers back in the day, and had, we had um, diaper pails. Anyone remember those things? This is pre-portable um, you know, ones. You know, they were expensive. You did them when you traveled. And I learned how to change them and how to clean them so I could. It's a lot of work. You look at Proverbs 31, it needs a virtuous woman, a woman of strength to care for her home. This is her home, and her husband trusts in her to do that. Well, he's gone, and he's off to war, and the spoils of war, the heart of her husband safely trusts in her because she's now in charge of the house. And so she feeds them interesting, exotic foods, Right? Foods from afar. She finds a way to clothe them and maybe, maybe have a home business. And she gets up early and stays at Blake and reaches out, reach out to the poor. And like I said, she puts clothing on everything, like the bed coverings and her kids and, and, and all the decor. And we love it. 
and she's not afraid of the snow. Neither am I, because I have a snowblower. Um, but she's, because her kids are clothed in, in scarlet and wool, means colorful, warm clothing. Not afraid of it. She just glitched the snow, I dare you to come. And, she, and she, she's not afraid of the future. She stares it down because she's caring for her home, looking well to the ways of her house, and everything is observed by her. She knows what's going on in every corner of the home. And kids think, Mom has eyes in the back of her head. They kind of do. It's like a sense, and if they're smart, they, they put strategically located things that have reflections in them, like mirrors and uh, pictures on the wall. And they have ears. She would open the window. They played outside. It was cold and, or hot outside. And, and she'd hear something, and they'd go, how did you hear? Well, she had the window cracked. <laughs> you can convince your kids that you're, you're omniscient. You can do that. I thought my mom was. <laughs> See everything. But she, she wants to know what's going on in her home. And so this is a, a demanding, diligent job that no one appreciates because no one sees it. In the middle of Proverbs 31 is her husband known in the gates. Where did that come from? Because he's in public, she's in private, and she's okay with that. He's sitting among the elders at the gate and talking about the big things of the world and making business deals and getting accolades on the back. She, she has snotty no kids, is spinning up all day and he's spanking all day and no one notices but God. She's okay with that. But her husband has to praise her, it says, because no one else is going to do it. So you trust her, you provide for her, and you praise her for that because no one else is going to do it. She's okay with that because she fears the Lord. She does it for him. But one day, her works will be known in the gates. The end of the chapter. What's that mean? What's her work? Her kids. And they grow up and everybody sees the work she did for all those years. And then what she did is known to everyone in public, and she's okay for waiting for that day. Because once, sometimes your work goes public. Then eventually her children will give her thanks. Uh, Danny would call sometimes from college and leave lengthy voicemails, something a little bit guilt-ridden, you know, hadn't called in a mile, mom, and... But at least he called, okay? At least he called, and he would exhaust the voicemail length and then just cut him off. And I, it was fun. I, we just listened. It was informative and a little, I'm so sorry, it's been so long since I called, but and he gets, it was kind of fun. Then she actually got her live at one time and said, uh, hi, this is the Capons. Hi, Mom, this is Danny. And then she said, he said, hi, blessed. She said, What? I just read in my Bible, her children will rise up and call her blessed. I just want to call you blessed today, meaning thanks for what you invested in my life. And that's the payoff. That's the roles that we play. But we labor together in raising our kids. Proverbs 1 verse 8 talks about the teaching of the father, instruction of the mother. We both are engaged. We don't need disengaged dads. Passive dads, not involved, we do this together. 
Second of all, thirdly, we do not provoke our children to anger. Interesting, that's the first admonition here before the training is do not provoke them. How negative is that? <laughs> do not, it's the first, do not provoke your children to anger. It is an exhortation, it's an imperative. Now, this is the primary thing in training. It's mentioned first. If you look at Colossians 3.21, the bullet point of this, it says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. And so Colossians 3 is like the bullet point version of Ephesians 6, and that's what's mentioned. Do not exasperate, do not dishearten, do not provoke them lest they be disheartened. That must be a big deal. It's primary here. It suggests the possibility that we might be doing that. even have a tendency to do that. And not thinking that what we're doing may be provoking them without us even knowing it. This means we may be actually responsible for some of their dispositions of the heart. Now, don't get me wrong. They're responsible for how they respond to the things of God, whether to obey and honor, and they're accountable for that. Nothing excuses them from that, but we play a role in affecting the dispositions of their heart. If we provoke them, we can make them angry and dishearten them. That's what the text says. And sometimes unwittingly, unknowingly, we've done and said things that have exasperated them, and maybe that's why they're the way that they are. Now be careful, there's two sides, they are accountable, and I wanna say it again, but this is what the text says, do not provoke your children. And the word provoke here means para or gidzo. The word para means to come alongside. We come alongside of them and anger them. Instead of coming alongside to teach them, we come alongside of them and, and make them angry. And the angry, anger here can be in a couple of forms. It can be like a simmering uh, undercurrent of seething anger or outbursts. It can be both. But look at Colossians chapter 3, do not provoke them, lest they lose heart. This is the disheartening. You've been disheartened before? Lost heart, motivation, incentive, been disheartened by things in life? And sometimes the things that we can do have disheartened them. So the next point, is that we might be responsible for this. And so maybe we need to take some inventory. What could we be doing that is doing this? And so I'm helping you with that. On my table in the back is called the guilt list. It's been dubbed that. 25 things that I have done or seen done that tend to provoke children to anger. You might want to add, I encourage you to take one in the back, take one per family, go over and say, you know, I think I might be doing that. And we might not even know that we're doing it. Do not provoke them to anger. Things like always telling them no, because that's the simple answer, no. <laughs> that's like the gut reaction, no. And, and that's, just, that's just irritating. You can tell them no when no means no, but it shouldn't always be the default answer like no. Want to go play? No. No, no. I mean, we don't like that. Things like not being fair or being unreasonable or the punishment doesn't fit the crime, or be too quick to judge, or be harsh and yell at them, or not recognize differences in children, or lack of genuine praise. Sometimes they do think deserving of praise, and probably more than we think. 
We just tend to notice what they do wrong. You have to consciously work of the smallest little thing. I was taught that working at UPS by an unsafe secular boss. Before you critique, find one thing they're doing right. One guy was, thank you for coming to work today. However, <laughs> that's all I could find. But it sets the tone better. Even Jesus did this in Revelation chapter 2. You do this really, really well, but I have this against you. It just cuts through the defenses, and, and, and they just irritate them. And so give them genuine praise for the smallest thing that you notice. You're not allowing to make things right, showing favoritism, all sorts of things. So get the list, allow God to convict you, and take some inventory. And maybe apologize to your kids if it's real. I was harsh with you. Please forgive me. And we can be harsh with our kids. Harshness is not good discipline. You don't wait till everything bigs up, then blow up like a volcano. That's not good discipline. That's harshness. We're never told even to yell at them. And I did that. I got angry with them. Or can they goof around the back seat and, oh, you're on my side of the seat, and I don't know, and I just, I just to hit something back there, you know. <laughs> just, just the fact that I tried, and that was horrible. Stop the car, make an explanation. I didn't always do that well. So some of these come from experience. But that's how he starts. Do not provoke them to anger. Don't come alongside of them to anger them, and don't dishearten them. I want to encourage you to take some inventory. Number four, and this is kind of the meat of it. <sighs> bring them to maturity. The phrase bring them up means bring them to maturity. The same word nourish in Ephesians 5, to nourish your wife, so you bring them to maturity. Uh, they're born immature and, and uncivilized to some degree. You have to bring them up. And some marks of maturity are discernment and responsibility and thoughtfulness and skillfulness in the word and wisdom and self-awareness and application, taking initiative. Those are all marks of maturity, and they're not born with that. They don't have any. They're uncivilized barbarians. That's biblically accurate. They're pagans without a regenerate heart. They know nothing except the old nature moving. They're not, they're not even born neutral with a bent towards sin. And it doesn't take long to notice they want what they want and they'll do whatever it takes to get it. Even at 10 months old. I'm picking on Angela again, but she was too young to remember. <laughs> we were camping on the Oregon coast and Sandy was, um, Angela was 10 months old roughly and we, uh, she did something and we spanked her. Now you don't spank them through three cloth diapers. They will laugh at you. Because it does so right below, the nice till tender spot right below that, don't have it hit very hard, and boom, let them know that was sinful. So we did, and she arched her back, and I said, what is going on? She passed out and stopped breathing. I said, we just killed our daughter. <laughs> I was, we're sitting in our tent terrified, trying to be good mom and dad and disciplined, and I just killed my daughter. Priest oh, sputtering, oh good, she's alive. And what is going on? I said, that was really, I, I'll never do that again. 
So we brought her to an obstetrician. What? Pediatrician. I keep getting them backwards. <laughs> Guys, you do the same thing. Come on, cut me some slack here. He said, you have a rebellious daughter. Wow. You won't get that today. <laughs> you say, lighten up. She's, she didn't like what you did, and she's throwing a tantrum, and she's rebellious. You need to deal with that. I said, whoa, this is good. We weren't saved. This is good advice. She's doing it to get attention and wants sympathy from you. At 10 months old, he said yes. He had no clue about the old nature, and neither did we, except she was experiencing it. When she does it, walk out of the room, act like nothing happened, eventually she'll stop doing it, and she did. That's how they're wired. So we have to bring them to maturity. That's the objective here. Bring them up where they're mature. You're preparing them to leave you. Get about 18 to 20 years to do that. That was huge to us. We're preparing them to leave us, to be independent of us, dependent on God, maybe having a family out on their own, because I will not always be there to watch over them. We told them that. And we enjoyed every year of that. We've heard people say, oh, I wish I had grandkids first. We don't. We love our grand. We loved our kids. We loved the training years. God blessed them. Now we get to watch our kids invest in their kids. How rewarding is that? You get about 18 to 20 years to leave you. Trusting God with a measure of maturity to function for him, maybe find a spouse and start a family. You don't, you're not hanging. You're, this is a stewardship over this period of time. So you have to bring them up. And there's a growing immaturity in the culture today of all the Generation Z and stuff. We're just not as mature as they used to be. So bring them into maturity. And this, this is how you do it. It requires training and counseling. Here are the two words to fill in here. You have to train them and counsel them. See, this is the method, the exhortation to bring them up. How do we do that? You do that by discipline instruction. The word discipline is not the best word to use here. We think of discipline as punishment, and, and it can be that. It's the word paideia, which we get the word pediatrician from. I should know that. It means to train a child. It's broader than spanking. The whole training, shaping, molding to be mature is the training process. And so you, you, it involves accountability and follow through, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then counseling is the word nuthesia, which means to, to verbally instruct them. It's corrective in nature. It's instruction with a view to correct. So you train them and you counsel. That's the method. Deuteronomy 6 is the process of doing it when you walk by the way, you rise up, you rise down, you do it all throughout your life. And so that becomes the plan. You do this from the word, you do this constantly. The Bible uses the word diligently often. Uh, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter six, it talks about teaching them diligently. The word diligently in Deuteronomy six, I actually looked it up, means to be intense. It means to be like the, the tip of a spear it speaks of to inculcate, I had to look up that word. It means to instill by repeated, persistent efforts, it becomes part of them. 
It can't be a once and done. We've seen parents, oh, I told them once not to touch this and it didn't work. Well, yeah. Well, I thought, no, they're not reasoning children yet. It might take several times. You might have to turn up the heat each time till they get it. So diligently means persistent, repeated effort and frequent repetitious instruction. You get the idea? Till it's inculcated, it becomes part of them, till it's instilled in them, implanted in them. That's diligently. It's a lot of work. <laughs> what were you thinking when you had kids? Oh, and, and they're, they're entertaining. They're hilarious. I think they have a, a biblical obligation to entertain us. I really do. I mean, they owe, they owe us something for in feeding them and all this stuff. Uh, here's our granddaughter, Addie. We took Addie and Finn to an outdoor uh, nativity at our church in uh, north of Des Moines, and they had a, a shepherd scene, and the pastor's wife dressed up as an angel on a deer stand. Okay? Yeah, that's pretty cool, but a kid's perspective was different. Addie said, this must be better than heaven. I can't believe I saw a real live angel. And Finn said, why is that angel stuck in the tree? <laughs> you know, you know, okay. <laughs> and Amy catches Finn and she said, she says, I told Finn to get the pop beads out of his ear. He said he couldn't because they're protecting my ears like Papa does. And then she asked Finn to pray for supper. So here's Finn. Dear Jesus, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for supper. And please, uh, supper, and please help Papa's tiny little helicopter to work good. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> They're a hoot. But it is a lot of hard work. You ought to be exhausted. If you do it right, you will be. A virtuous woman has a strength for that, and she fears God for that. Her husband praises her for that. And so you train and you counsel them. And these are some things that, that this, it requires instruction. You have to tell them what you expect of them. I think sometimes kids don't obey because they weren't told what to do. Instruction and clarification, meaning we're not as clear as we think we are all the time. Have them explain back to you what you told them. We did something wrong, say, do you understand why you're being punished? No. And clarification, then there's illustration. Learn to illustrate things to life. I saw in the back, encouragingly, keys for kids. If you don't get them and have young kids, do it. Just get them. How do we illustrate life to kids? How do we take the Bible to make application of life and illustrate it? Jesus did that, illustrated through all the figures of speech and all the word pictures of how he taught. And so learn to illustrate and to make application of life. And keys for kids, it has a key for the day, a story. We ask them, guess what the key is? And you wanted to be a keys for kid mom when they were older beyond that. And so learn to illustrate. It requires application to life. The Bible becomes just a theology book to them and not relevant. You have to apply it to life. They don't know how to do that. As a dean of women, or girls are coming in, how do I make application to life? And they love it. A lot of them haven't learned how to do this, so make an application to life. For example, you can use cereal boxes to teach sanctification. Boom, I just made it mine. I sanctified the box, made it for my possession, or you can teach them the will of God with cereal boxes. Cereal boxes are 
Very, very good illustrations. You can choose one of these three brands, and I will say yes. Outside of them, the answer is no. So guess which one they picked? Yep, I don't know who it was. We'll keep that coming. Oh, they all did it. Okay, here we go. The quality of whatever. You picked outside of my will, the answer, outside of God's will, the answer is always no. Inside of his will, the answer is less. So yes, so learn to make application. It requires observation. What are they doing in your home? What are they saying to their friends? How are they conversing in the backyard? Crack open the window. Strategically put a painting on the wall and, and peering off the glass. It requires a call compensation. Things have to cost them initially. They're not doing it for Christ. They don't have a conscience yet, so we have to cost them something. Cost, conscience, and Christ are the motivations of life. And they have to be taught that things cost them something. There's a reaping and sowing principle that's part of life. And Proverbs is if you dis do this, you end up here. It connects the dots between decisions and consequences. You have to do that for them. Things have to cost them to connect the dots. It requires correction. Training is correction to take a basketball team and, and shape them in the ball requires correcting things so they see things differently. Uh, we were in one uh, local church on a Sunday night, had our teen ministry team in the patch club and getting set up and Sandy's talking with the pastor's wife and their little daughter, a couple of her friends. The daughters are chattering to all of her friends. Ah. So Sandy says hi to the kid. I said, oh, here we go. Here starts the journey. <laughs> and so the daughter went, hmm. I mean, not just, she just defied her, like, I dare you to make me talk. It was an ugly face. And the mom's going, oh, just say hi to Mrs. Kafon. Hmm. Again, I said, oh, boy, you do not want to do this with my wife. She will not let this go. <laughs> she won't. And so the mother says something you never say, oh, she's just shy. <laughs> She'd been chatting with all of her friends, which we know she knows how to talk, but that was the defense. And what came next was priceless. And then she said, but she doesn't know you. Thinking that, said, that didn't settle it either. <laughs> We're not done yet. So Sandy said, you know, she doesn't, but you do know me. You just gave her a direct command that she disobeyed. And she went, oh, I never saw it that way. And thanks that she got it. And then she took care of it. <laughs> That's correcting. Not excusing, not defending. They have all the defense mechanisms built in. You gave her a direct command, she disobeyed. It doesn't matter if she knows me or not. You told her to do it, she disobeyed. She never saw it at disobedience. Then it requires restoration. The goal of discipline or accountability is that they're restored to fellowship with you and with the Lord. And so you can't leave them hanging with a spanking. Can't leave them hanging with a discipline. And discipline comes in different forms. We would meet with our kids for birthdays sometime, and Lily was younger, and um, she was just being kind of snotty. But what, what she valued was being with people. And so we put her, and Danny put her in a high chair in the corner, kind of said, Lily, you know why you're sitting here? And that crushed her. She didn't want to be not with us. So find what they value and then deny them that is what could cost them. That will change over time. But you have to restore them. 
You can't leave them hanging without making restitution and, and, having, and confessing their sin. You do this not just because they were snotty, because you want to restore them to fellowship. God does that with us. He doesn't leave us hanging. We confess our sin, we fellowship restores. So walk them through the restoration process. Who have you sinned against? Why did you sin? Who, who do we have to make it right with? And bring them to full circle restoration. It requires meditation on the word. You have to be immersed in the word to find strength and wisdom and meditate. It, it, it requires anticipation, meaning one day this might actually pay off. That's where afterwards kicks in. That's where your work is known in the gates kicks in. God will honor the application of his word. That's how we train them. And number five, you have to walk with God. We do this in the disinstruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. This is not just secular do-goodism, because unsafe people can raise decently behaved kids. We, we have a couple of nephews who are uh, adults, and they're, they're good kids. They're responsible, and they're kind, and they're, they're generous. They're not redeemed, but they're decent kids. But th this is of a spiritual nature. This is within the realm of you walk with the Lord. This is a spiritual aspect. You do it for him with his strength and his power. So here's some things that appeal. First of all, trust Christ as your Savior. If you're not in the Lord, you can't do this. This is for redeemed, spirit-filled people. And read chapter 2 about finding life in Christ, putting your faith in him by the grace of God, giving you eternal life. Trust Christ as your Savior and value that. Let it be take ownership of your walk with God. Uh, you can't teach what you don't know. You can't teach what you haven't known. And so Deuteronomy 6 says, these things have to be on your heart. And then you teach them to your children. And so Moses said, you have to own this. Uh, your theology of God, your affection for him, you have to make these on your heart. Take ownership of your walk with God. Let us see, teach them his word. Deuteronomy 6 says you teach them diligently. And then you take them to his word, meaning when you face something in life, you go, let's go to the word of God, see what God has to say about this. And you, you want them to deal with God, not, you're, you're the intermediary here. You want, you want them to deal with God, so you take them to his word, not just teach him, but you take them to his word and say, let's see what God says about this sin. Ephesians 40, 32 can buy you five years of training with your kids. A couple others will help. Was this kind? No. What I do? Ask forgiveness. Why? Because Christ forgave me. It's just you take them to the word. Don't just tell them stuff. Open a Bible, take them to the Word, and say, this is what God says about this, what's wrong, how to get restored, and you make them deal with Him. So He's the authority, because you won't always be there. Paul to the Philippians, you've obeyed in my absence. That day is going to happen even when they're dependent children. You can't be with them 24 hours a day. I can't watch everything you do. I can't see every attitude heart, but I want you to deal with God where He can, you live in His presence. So you teach him his word, you, talk, you take him to the word, and then you talk of him everywhere you go. You talk of him when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way. Don't limit talking about God to devotions. You have them, a family worship time or Sunday school or VBS, but don't, otherwise God will only exist to them there. If you haven't connected him to life, neither will they. 
And, and we have known families that I would call pillar families that love God and uh, love their church and, and never trained them outside of normal church things or devotions. Close your Bible, live our life. That's one reason we lose some of our kids. We don't talk of him constantly. I remember one guy asked me sometime when we were homeschooling, he said, how does your wife go from being uh, like a school, homeschool teacher to a mom? I said, she doesn't. She's always teaching. We just change subjects. Could be how to answer the phone. Could, could be how to write a thank you note. Uh, it could be theology. It could be math. Didn't you love the counting to 18-wheeler by Pilate? I thought you were going to bust a gut with that one. Man. Yeah. <laughs> So you talk of him constantly. It isn't tedious. You just have to think, God is everywhere. I need to point him to him everywhere I go. This is part of Psalm 78. We will not hide them from our children. What? The invisible hand of God. You have to show them not just his word, but his works. And so the little blank here is the word work. We show them the word of God. We teach them and show them the works of God. His mighty power is hidden to, to the unseeing eyes. If the show, this was the hand of God. This was God at work. It could be a lightning storm. It, it could be a hailstorm. It could be the, the frost in the morning. It could be an answer to prayer. It could be finding a parking spot. This was the hand of God. And you teach them to see the visible hand of God and show him his works everywhere you go. Every moment's a teaching moment. And you can learn to think that way. This is life-changing for us. You have devotions. You have your, your dedicated sit-down time. But don't limit it to that. Or God will never exist to be real to them apart from that. Show them he cares about every detail of your life. And talk of him everywhere you go. And letter F, you take them with you. We talked about that yesterday. You take them with you. You involve them in ministry. You disciple them. So as much as you can, you take them with you. Kids are very, very portable. And today we have, we had umbrella strollers. They were really bad on gravel. Now we have what you guys have. This is like heaven, the big pneumatic tires, and kids are portable. And it's inconvenient, but they can handle stuff. Oh, don't take them to a funeral. Take them to funerals. When my dad passed away nine years ago, Lily sat, has, stood at his casket. Hi. This is my great-grandpa. He's not here anymore. This is just his shell. He's in heaven. How old was she nine years ago? Five. She greeted the guests at my dad's casket. They can handle it. This is life and death. And so you take them with you when you can to Bible study. We took our kids to Bible studies as much as we could. And so you take them, you're discipling them, and that requires attaching themselves to you don't shield them from life and ministry. Take them with you. And then take this seriously, meaning we don't walk with a pout on our face, but this is important stuff. We have to be strategic and intentional and take it seriously. A pastor friend of mine, they brought home their first child, and he was kind of kidding around and taking pictures. And the wife said, Stephen, what? This is, quit goofing around. This is a big deal. I said, Okay. And she said, we have a child to raise. You have 18 years to train them and they're gone. Quit goofing around. He said, okay. <laughs> He's a pretty tough guy. And it pretty much hammered him, you know. 
And we were expecting Angela. Sandy said, I can't do this. I said, well, it's too late for that. <laughs> and then I said, they're not born teenagers. We will grow with them. And, and that turned out to be true. She says, I think all I did was spank them all day. I said, did they deserve it? Yes. I said, good. There are days like that. She says, I don't know what to do. I said, if you don't like something, correct it. Just correct it. Because part of applying these things to life is the scriptures, the spirit of God, and doing what seems best to you. Hebrews chapter 12 talks, we had fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, and they did what seemed best to them. You take the word of God, apply it to life, do what seems best, and make a judgment call. That's we found out that's biblical. And it's not always clear cut, but you do what seems best to you with the spirit of God leading you. And lastly, you, you trust God for that. I don't think it's in your notes, but you trust God for all of this. You do it in the realm of your walk with the Lord. You do all that you can. You work hard. You pray hard. You love them. You enjoy them. You laugh with them. You play with them. You have fun trips with them, spontaneous and planned. You, you giggle with them. You rest the floor with them. And you work hard at shaping and molding their life so that God can save them and use them. But you trust God for this. Only he can give you wisdom. He can give you clarity. He can give you the strength and endurance to work in their hearts and raise up a generation that loves him and serves him. These are fundamental. A little bit of a template here to flesh out in your life. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the gift of marriage, grateful for the gift of children. a stewardship of shaping a life, a life we pray that you'll redeem and shape and mold to be useful for Jesus, to love him and glorify him with their life. Lord, the world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. Powerful forces at work to destroy and ruin our children. It's getting crazier every week. But Father, you've given us your word and your spirit and our local churches and uh, the word of God to help us to, to mold our children. So Father, we commit them to you. Pray that you do a work in their heart and we do the work you've called us to do. Give us the strength for that, the wisdom for that, the clarity for that, the diligence for that. We lay a hold of these fundamental truths and by the grace of God, apply them to our life, moved by the Holy Spirit. And you do a mighty work in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.